Good morning, Hope Church. It's been five years since we were able to visit you. I'm just curious, anything interesting happened in that time? Since 2017? Okay, good. Well, uh, it's a real pleasure to be back and to be worshiping with you and sharing God's Word with you. And uh, it's really great to see familiar faces and see some new faces. Um, We're going to go into the Word, but uh, before we do, just a reminder, after the service, we'll have a refreshment time and we're going to share briefly about what we do. And, uh, and answer any questions you might have. So we're looking forward to that time as well. Our scripture passage comes from Hebrews 2, verses 1 to 4. And before we read that, we're going to pray, ready for God's word. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for giving us your word. We thank you for your revelation. And we pray now that uh, you will open our eyes and hearts through your spirit And not only help us to hear and understand, but also to help us to believe and put into action the things that uh, we see from you in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews 2, uh, chapters 2, verses 1 to 4. Hear the word of the Lord. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we've heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. On the first day of the Gospels class that I teach at a seminary in Mexico City, I ask my seminarians, what is the Gospel? If you could boil down Jesus' message, the message that he preached in just one or two sentences, what would it be? And they often struggle with that, and they especially want to bring in ideas and words from Paul's letters. Even Paul gets uh, attributed to Revelation sometimes. (laughs) Sorry, Anita. Uh, and, uh, and so they bring up uh, things from Paul's letter by saying, yeah, but what did Jesus actually preach? What is his message? I wonder how each of you would do if I asked you to stand up and summarize Jesus' message in one or two sentences. I'm not going to do that. But I, by all rights, I should be able to do that. This is a Christian church. Many of you are disciples of Jesus Christ, and uh, many of you have been listening to sermons your whole lives. Why is it so hard for us to summarize concretely the most basic concepts of the faith? Why is it so hard for us to articulate that? Is it our fault? Maybe we've let entertainment and sports and hobbies and socializing and travel take up all of our free time. Do we binge watch series on streaming services, but never binge read the Word of God? I was encouraged to see a screen talking about read through the Bible in a year. I hope many of you will do that. Or maybe it's the church's fault, not necessarily this church, but churches in general. Maybe we've trained ourselves by sitting in pews that looks like a theater seat and a raised platform. Maybe we're training ourselves to just listen passively 
rather than to think through and investigate and discuss and memorize and learn to articulate the things that we ought to know by heart. Now, to be honest, I'm not looking for who to blame. I'm more interested in where we go from here. The knowledge of God's Word in Christian churches is slipping. Biblical illiteracy is uh, sinking in. It's growing. What can we do to get back on track? How can we get back to valuing and internalizing the Gospel? Now, if it's any consolation, this problem isn't anything new. And that's where our passage in Hebrews 2 comes in. The first hearers of the letter to the Hebrews were second generation Christians. The first generation heard the gospel, got excited, formed a church. But now the first leaders have died. And the new generation has come in and they're uh, vacillating, they're wavering. Uh, And they've become slackers with regard to the word of God and the Christian message. Some of them weren't attending anymore, and others of them uh, were tempted to return to their former religion of Judaism. And their friends and family members that were still in Judaism were pressuring them with arguments and objections to go back to the synagogue. And Hebrews chapters 1 and 2 were written to address one of those arguments. And the argument goes like this. That Jesus' word doesn't matter much because he was just a mere man and his message is just the opinions of one human being. But the law of Moses, that's a different story because the law was given to Israel from God by angels. And the angels came and gave the law to Israel. So whatever Jesus might have to say pales in comparison to what the angels have brought, the law of God himself. So from the non-Christian Jewish perspective then, the law is from angels, and therefore it's very important, but the gospel comes from a mere human being, and so it is not as important. And so the author of Hebrews responds to this argument in chapter 1, explaining that Jesus is not your average human being. He is the very Son of God, the Messiah. And then in the rest of chapter 1, the author shares a series of scripture passages from the Old Testament to show that the Son is superior, superior to the angels. And then in the second half of chapter 2, after our passage, the author explains that Jesus had to be made a little lower than the angels for a time so that he could become a human, and that would give him the ability to die, to die for our sins. But now that Jesus has been raised and ascended and exalted, he's no longer lower than the angels anymore. And the main counter-argument in Hebrews 1 and 2 is from our passage. And the logic is very clear. The angels gave us the law, and disobedience to the law in the Old Testament brought punishment, sometimes even capital punishment, execution. But the Son is superior to the angels, and his message, the gospel, is superior to the the law, the message that the angels bring. And the rejection of the gospel will bring a punishment even more severe than the the, the punishments brought by rejection of the law. Now, the danger that our author identifies is drifting. Like when you go to the ocean, 
and you get into the water, and pretty soon you're way down from where you entered the water where your friends are still on the beach, drifting. The first audience was in danger of drifting back to Judaism. Maybe today we might be more inclined to drifting toward one of the philosophies of our day, or drifting simply to an aimless life of consumerism and consumption. And the solution that our author gives us is that we need to pay more careful attention to the message that we've heard the Son speak. We need to keep the Gospel in our sights, keep it before our eyes, so that we don't drift away from it. Now, when our author compares the message of the Son and the message of the angels, the Gospel and the Law, uh, he's not criticizing the Old Testament as a whole, or the law in particular. The Old Testament, including the law, continues to be the Word of God for us, continues to have authority over us. Rather, the point of our author, the point of God in Hebrews, is that we need to read the Old Testament in light of the new and superior revelation that we've been given in the New Testament. And maybe this would be a good moment to think about uh, the relationship of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because many Christians have this idea that in the Old Testament, God was strict, God was demanding, God was severe. But now in the New Testament, God's a pushover. (laughs) He's gone soft, like some cheerful, indulgent grandpa saying, ah, let the kids do whatever they want, it doesn't matter, Just, just love and don't worry about the rules. How different that concept from the biblical one. Our author says the exact opposite is true. We've been given a higher, superior revelation. And so the expectations are also higher. And the punishment is even greater for people who reject and disobey this revelation. Here's something interesting. The New Testament is at the same time easier and more difficult than the Old Testament. On the one hand, Jesus says that his yoke is lighter, and that's true. When we know that our sins have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ, and that we have assurance of salvation, we can serve out of gratitude, out of love, out of joy, and we don't have to serve out of fear. And it's easier and a lighter yoke because the powerful Spirit of God lives in us and enables us for Christian living and for ministry. And so, yes, following Jesus is indeed a lighter yoke. Amen. On the other hand, the New Testament calls us to a higher, more demanding obedience. Think of the Sermon on the Mount. Think of when Jesus says that anger is just as bad as murder, or lust is just as bad as committing adultery, that they're guilty, that they're deserving of the equal punishment. Think of how Jesus calls us to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and follow Him in costly obedience. Think of how hard it is to truly forgive as we've been forgiven and how hard it is to truly love as we have been loved with such a costly love that took Jesus to the cross. And the punishment for disobeying the New Testament is greater as well. For the unbeliever... The punishment is eternal, and the book of Hebrews is in several places lays this out in the strongest and starkest of terms. 
if we reject the sacrifice of Jesus, there's no other sacrifice available that we can turn to. There's no other option. It's a dreadful thing, the author of Hebrews says, to fall into the hands of a living God, especially if you have spurned the open arms of His Son. And according to the New Testament, there's also a very real loss for Christians who disobey the gospel as well. Our salvation is secure, amen, but we could walk into the kingdom with our hands empty without having received the blessings that God has promised to all believers who live a life of good works and action as we saw in the children's sermon we could miss our chance here and now to store up treasures in heaven, as Jesus says. Well, now, maybe some of this talk about punishments and demands has sounded rather heavy, rather negative to some of you, and you might be thinking, hey, Dave, uh, I thought the gospel was good news. And uh, speaking of the gospel, (coughs) uh, you said at the beginning of the sermon that uh, you, you asked us to define the gospel, but here we are halfway to the sermon, and you haven't done so yourself. Uh, you're holding out on us, man. Give us the good stuff. Well, I made you wait. Yes, I did. And I made my seminarians wait as well, but then, I, then when they're ready, then I remind them that the gospel itself tells us, the gospel of Mark tells us in so many words what Jesus' core message is. And here it is. The time has come The kingdom of God has come near. That's the gospel. And then the response to the gospel is, repent and believe the good news. This good news. The gospel is the message that time has changed. The time has come, the kingdom has arrived, and things have changed. The world that was being governed by Satan is now being overthrown. It's under new management. We have a new world, a new authority over us, a new government. And this new kingdom calls for a change of allegiance, a change of citizenship. Jesus calls us to repent and believe. What does that mean? To repent means to renounce the kind of life that we lived under Satan's regime, under the old way of doing things. And to leave behind all the things that displease God, all the things we can't take with us into the new kingdom. And to believe the gospel, to believe the good news, means to trust that the kingdom really is coming, despite the fact that we can't see it in all of its glory. And to trust that the gospel is true, even though there are so many other voices, so many other alternatives clamoring for our allegiance. So that's it. The gospel is the announcement that the kingdom of God is on the way and has even now begun to break into our world. But why is that good news? Well, it's good news, first of all, because no matter how how much evil we have done under the devil's management, no matter how corrupt we have become in the process, God still holds the doors open for His kingdom, to us. God offers forgiveness and amnesty and change of citizenship to all of the subjects of Satan's kingdom who will repent and believe. The gospel is also good news 
because it doesn't depend on anything that we provide any virtue of our own. How much money you have, how, much, how smart you are, how beautiful you are, what color your skin is, what country you come from, how easy or difficult it is to live a moral life. There are no hoops to go through that separate a new elite from all the rest. God the Father took the initiative. Jesus the Son paid the punishment for our sins on the cross. And the Holy Spirit applies redemption to our lives. We don't deserve it. We can't do anything to earn it. All we can do is just receive it as a gift of God's grace. And finally, the gospel is also good news because the people who suffered the most under the devil's regime will have their fortunes reversed. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who, are, who mourn and who are insulted and persecuted. In the kingdom of God, the last become first. Those who have been crushed by this world but who have put their faith in Jesus will be raised up, vindicated, and exalted. And you know, the poor and the powerless don't have to wait until the kingdom comes in all of its fullness to get relief. Because here and now, God puts them in His family, the church, where they're surrounded by their Christian brothers and sisters who will surround them with love and care. In summary, the good news of Jesus Christ is that the life-shriveling kingdom of Satan is being overthrown by the great, eternal, glorious kingdom of God. And here and now, the doors of this kingdom are wide open to everyone in the world from whatever country they're from, whatever social status uh, they're from, whatever they've done. If they'll renounce their allegiance to the old world, and turn to King Jesus, accepting the free forgiveness that he offers and submitting to his rule over their lives. Now before we conclude, there's one other matter that we should attend to in our passage that comes in verses 3 and 4, and it's this. If the message of Jesus were just the opinions of a human being, then Jesus would just be one voice among many. Mm -hmm. His word against the philosophers. His word against the founders of the other religions. But there's a big difference with Jesus because God the Father Himself has made it clear that the good news of Jesus is true because God sent a multitude of miracles to confirm and back up the Gospel. Just think of the miracles and angel appearances when Jesus was born. Think of the many miracles that Jesus did in His ministry, only a few of which are recorded in the Gospels. Think of the miracles that Jesus' disciples did when he sent them out on evangelistic campaigns. Think of the miracle of the resurrection. Think of all the miracles the apostles did in the book of Acts. And think of the gifts that the Spirit distributes to all Christians, something that Peter and Paul both talk about in their letters. God openly and publicly confirmed the message of Jesus and his apostles. He put his stamp of approval on it, so to speak. And so we have every reason to believe that the gospel is a trustworthy message. It's not just something that someone made up. It's a direct revelation from God. 
And so in conclusion, maybe you're visiting here today, attending, and you're not yet a disciple of Jesus Christ. And if that's the case, I want to challenge you. Jesus is at your door inviting you in, or asking to be invited in, and Jesus is also opening the door of his kingdom for you to come in. No matter who you are, no matter what kind of life you've led, if you repent and believe, you can be part of the kingdom even before you get up out of your seat today. And so I want to encourage you to come and talk. It could be with me or the leaders of this church or even someone that you know and trust who's a member here. We want to help you take this momentous step in your life. But probably most of us here are more like the first readers of the letter to the Hebrews. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, but maybe you've become complacent, a little careless about the good news of Jesus, the Messiah. Maybe you got distracted by the cares of this life and the attractions of this world. And you've drifted. The ways have carried you away toward false teachings or toward unbecoming conduct, attitudes, uh, spiritual dryness, confusion. And if that's true of you, I want to challenge you as well. Challenge you to do what Hebrews 2 calls us to do. To pay more careful attention to what we've heard from Jesus. To overcome your neglect of the gospel and dig into God's word. Mm-hmm. It'll take some time. You'll probably need to block off time in your schedule. And during that time, you're going to need to find a way to reduce the distractions so you can get right into the word. But you know what? Learning about the gospel has never been easier. Our denomination publishes online tons of resources that are for free and available online. There are Christian bookstores that offer an endless supply of books and study Bibles and Bible studies and things to help you understand and believe and obey the good news. And there's websites, YouTube channels. I think of the Bible Project as specifically a very good one. And I'd mention my site, but most everything is in Spanish there. Uh, And don't overlook the obvious resource that is our Christian brothers and sisters. They can support and guide you. And by doing so, they themselves will be encouraged in their Christian walk. Because there's nothing more invigorating than helping someone who is eager to learn about the faith. And so, congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ... I want to conclude by thanking you for helping my wife Blanca and me as we live and preach and teach this gospel in Mexico City. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your uh, encouragement, your Facebook likes, for your financial support. And our prayer for you is that you yourselves will never drift from the gospel or drift from your enthusiasm for it. I pray that you'll study on it, reflect on it, live it, and proclaim it. Proclaim this powerful word that we've been given by the great and glorious Son of God. Let's pray. Gracious Father, give us, we pray, the grace to attend to your word in all of its depth and detail, in all of the challenges and comforts it provides for us. May we become so captivated by the good news that we will devour it, internalize it, practice it, and embody it. May your word be our anchor and our lifeline to keep us from drifting away from you. And while we wait for the kingdom that the gospel announces to us, 
Enable us now to live boldly as previews of that kingdom by our faith and repentance, by our careful attention, and by our courageous proclamation. What a great salvation you have given us, and we thank you for it. May we revel in that salvation, and may we take that salvation to the ends of the earth. In the name of the Son, who was made lower than the angels, but who is now exalted over heaven and earth. Amen.